Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The war between Israel and Hamas is now the deadliest of five Gaza wars. Israel's prime minister has a warning for Hezbollah terrorists and their Iranian backers. An Israeli ground offensive against Hamas could happen at any moment. We hear from a military strategist to find out what to expect. Will President Biden visit Israel? More on the ongoing discussions at the White House and the latest in the U.S. response to the war now intensifying in the Middle East. Also in Washington, a federal judge says former President Trump is not above the law. Then she ordered him to stop talking about certain individuals. Looking for answers, some House Republicans want more info on Biden's classified documents, saying national security might be at risk. And will the House elect a speaker this week? Some key Republicans who opposed Congressman Jim Jordan are now supporting him. But is it enough to secure the gavel? Over 4,000 people killed in the Israel-Hamas war so far. The two sides continue to trade missiles and air raids as an Israeli ground offensive looms. As of Monday, at least 4,100 people have been killed in the war between Israel and Hamas, making it the deadliest of five Gaza wars for both sides. The Gaza Health Ministry said 2,750 Palestinians are dead. Israel said more than 1,400 Israelis were killed. Hamas said on Monday it fired a barrage of missiles on Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. According to Israeli media, there were no immediate reports of injuries. Israel also hit southern Gaza with more airstrikes. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed Israel's parliament. There are many questions about the disaster that happened to us 10 days ago. We will investigate everything to the end, and we have already begun to apply immediate lessons. But now we are focused on one goal, to join forces and charge forward to victory. This requires determination because victory will take time. There will be difficult moments. There will be bumps. Sacrifice is required. Netanyahu also warned Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon and their Iranian backers that they will pay a high price if they become involved in the war. This comes as Israel exchanged fire repeatedly with Hezbollah. The military has ordered residents from 28 Israel communities close to the Lebanese border to evacuate. Israeli officials also updated the number of hostages in Gaza, which is higher than previous estimates. We've informed the families of 199 hostages. There is an effort of top national priority in the issue of the hostages, and we are focused on this effort as a top national priority. As Israel prepares for a major ground offensive in Gaza, more than a million people have fled their homes. That's roughly half of the territory's population. The Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt was shut down nearly a week ago. Egypt says it won't allow anyone out unless aid is allowed into Gaza. Until now, unfortunately, the Israeli government has not taken a position to open the Rafah crossing from the Gaza side or the entry of aid and the exit of third country citizens. 
The U.S. government has begun evacuating Americans from Israel as those stranded express frustration with the slow pace. A ship carrying U.S. citizens departed from the Israeli port of Haifa on Monday to take them to Cyprus. More evacuation ships will transport Americans to Cyprus. This came a day after a charter flight by the state of Florida carrying over 270 Americans from Israel landed in Tampa, Florida on Sunday. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he expects there will be more flights in the coming days. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Israeli troops are lining up with tanks and other military equipment near the Gaza Strip border, and it appears that a much-anticipated ground offensive against Hamas terrorists could happen at any moment. And a warning, some of the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Israel has been launching relentless airstrikes on Hamas targets since the terrorist group attacked Israeli civilians over a week ago. At the same time, Hamas has continued firing rockets into Israel. And now, over a week into the war, Israel is gearing up for a ground offensive into the Gaza Strip to destroy the Hamas terrorist group. But ultimately, this is going to be uh, men against men, uh, small groups against small groups. It's, it's simply going to be a hard and bloody battle. I spoke with Rick Fisher, senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center, about the upcoming ground offensive, and he described it as nothing short of a meat grinder. The terrain of Gaza is, is going to be very difficult. Uh, ruined buildings everywhere, bombed out buildings, Israeli units trying to maneuver. Uh, Hamas forces appearing out of nowhere, yes, appearing out of tunnels, uh, but uh, largely uh, emerging from, from ruins. Uh, this, is, this is a battle that favors the sniper. And as for the possible occupation of Gaza to prevent another terrorist attack on Israel, Fisher said this. There is really no other way for Israel to prevent a similar occurrence other than to occupy Gaza build a new government and to spend probably a generation uh, building a citizenry that understands uh, the rule of law, understands the obligations of free people, and understands the necessity to live in peace with neighbors. This is in sharp contrast to President Biden's recent comments that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza. And amid the war's smoke and horrors, Fisher highlighted a significant behind-the-scenes player. Overlaying this whole war has been the support of China. China's political, commercial, and military and technology support of Iran over the last 40 years has enabled Iran to turn the proxies of Hezbollah and Hamas into weapons able to wage war against Israel. With the attack of Hamas, China has basically come clean. It is now all but a declared enemy of the state of Israel. Fisher explained that this war proves that the Chinese Communist Party wants to destroy freedom in the Middle East. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
As the U.S. continues to show support for Israel, will President Biden take the step to visit the country? Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What are the White House and Israel saying about this potential trip? Good evening to you, Tiff. So the White House has not given us any formal confirmation about this potential trip by President Biden to Israel. But today, President Biden canceled the trip to Colorado for what the White House called national security meetings in the morning. And we know that it follows, it follows Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly telling Biden to go during a call on Saturday. And today, Israeli officials said that a a visit by President Biden would make a significant importance and strategic importance on the entire Middle East region. And so we're certainly going to watch very closely on if there is any announcement from the White House in the coming days, if not hours. And when it comes to the Middle East, we know that as Israel is preparing for this ground invasion of Gaza, the White House this morning condemned Hamas for trying to prevent civilians from leaving Gaza. Here's what White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said this morning. Watch. I mean, they are literally throwing up roadblocks uh, to prevent people from moving from North Gaza to South Gaza to get to get towards the, the Rafah gate. Uh, they're actually trying to encourage uh, people to remain human shields uh, as they try to tunnel up underneath their homes and the headquarters in their schools and hospitals. And President Biden also said in an interview that was just aired this weekend that Hamas are trying to hide behind civilians and that Israel is trying to do everything it can to try to prevent, avoid, and killing any innocent civilians. Meanwhile, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is touring the Middle East, visiting as many as six countries in just a matter of a few days. And today, when back in Israel, he told them that the U.S. has their back and that he's been telling countries in the surrounding region that they want to ensure that none of them will try to get involved and widen this conflict. Here's what Blinken and the Israeli defense minister said today. Watch. This will be a long war. The price will be high, but we are going to win. You have and always have the support of the United States. And all this is as the U.S. is sending a second U.S. carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean. And the goal, of course, is to try to deter countries in the surrounding region from trying to get involved and escalate this into a regional conflict. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. A hate crime investigation opened today into the stabbing death of a six-year-old boy in Illinois. The DOJ said it appears he and his mother were targeted as Palestinian Muslims. Their landlord, Joseph Chuba, was charged with first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder, two counts of hate crime and other charges. According to the county sheriff's office, the boy was stabbed 26 times and his mother was also severely injured from the attack. Officials said yesterday that the victims were targeted for their religion and in response to the war between Israel and Hamas. A new gag order for former President Trump in the federal election case. Judge Tanya Chutkin said Trump does not have the right to say and do exactly what he pleases. NTD's legal correspondent has more details. A heated round of arguments on Monday pitted a presidential candidate's First Amendment rights against the judge's duty to preserve the integrity of court proceedings. The judge, Tanya Chutkin, 
sided with the Department of Justice in a limited order that restricts former President Trump from making public statements that attack witnesses, prosecutors, or court staff. Chutkin is presiding over the case against Trump for allegedly interfering in the 2020 election. Her order came after a two-hour hearing in which the DOJ vigorously argued that Trump is unfairly influencing the jury pool with posts he makes on social media. They asked that the gag order limit what he could comment on related to the case. Trump's attorneys argued that the request violates his First Amendment rights and interferes with his presidential campaign efforts. In a narrowly tailored order, Chutkin focused on restricting comments Trump made on social media about participants in the case that could affect potential jurors. She did not block Trump from making comments about Washington, D.C. or criticism of the government, including the Biden administration and the DOJ. The judge said she would consider sanctions if Trump violated the order. She refused to delay the March 4 trial date until after the election, saying this trial will not yield to the election cycle. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards for more discussion on the gag order. Arlene, in this case today, it seems that the judge was very specific about what speech was being restricted, and she actually didn't grant all of the DOJ's requests in terms of Trump's First Amendment rights. Do you think the judge ruled fairly today? Well, Tiffany, I think she made efforts to separate speech that was related to this case from comments he's made about candidates involved in the presidential campaign. And she specifically addressed the differences between comments made about witnesses or prosecutors versus comments made about, for example, Mike Pence. And I think she was trying to be fair. However, throughout the proceeding, before she made her final ruling, she did make clear that Mr. Trump was not above the law and that he couldn't say exactly what he pleases. And in terms of this judge separating election speech from comments about the case, Trump's attorneys have argued that the restrictions and even the trial date are a form of election interference. The judge says she will not delay the March 4th trial until after the election. How could this potentially impact Trump's presidential campaign? Well, that trial date is one day before Super Tuesday. And for those who don't know what that is, Super Tuesday is the biggest day for the presidential primaries. It's the date when the greatest number of states will hold primaries and caucuses. So having the trial start the day before Super Tuesday could potentially take Trump off of the campaign trail and place him at a disadvantage in getting more votes. But some argue that the trial date won't pose that much of a problem because he might not have to show up in person. And some states like California will already have most of their votes cast. And besides, Trump has such large name recognition that he doesn't necessarily have to be actively meeting and greeting people in order to get the votes. And now, the judge's gag order today is similar in nature to a limited gag order a New York judge imposed on the former president earlier this month during a civil trial. But some are saying today's order is more serious. How are they different? Well, Tiffany, I think the intent of the orders is the same. Both are blocking former President Trump from posting or commenting on certain individuals. In the New York case, it was comments about the court staff. In the case today, it's witnesses, prosecutors, and court staff. But I think what some people are saying is that the New York judge's order doesn't have the same legal effect because he didn't put it in writing. Now, he made a statement from the bench, and he said that it should be considered an order, then he threatened sanctions if anyone violated it. But there is a federal rule that says a statement is not enforceable. Uh, and so it's not clear 
whether or not New York has a different rule, but it may be something that could be argued later on uh, if the judge tries to sanction Trump. Arlene, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. And Trump responded on Truth Social, saying he'll appeal the gag order and call the proceedings a witch hunt. Now, over to the classified documents found in President Biden's possession. Today, the House Oversight Committee said it wants to know if any of those documents involved countries where the Bidens did business. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Kentucky Representative James Comer is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. On Monday, Comer sent a letter to special counsel Robert Hur. Hur is currently investigating whether President Biden broke the law by mishandling classified documents. Now Comer wants to know if any of the documents involved countries where Hunter Biden did business. He wrote, if any of the classified documents mishandled by President Biden involved countries or individuals that had financial dealings with Biden family members or their related companies, the committee needs access to that information to evaluate whether our national security has been compromised. Back in January, CNN reported that the president indeed had such documents in his possession. The documents reportedly touched on Iran, Ukraine and the UK. This comes just one week after the president sat down with special counsel Hur for an interview regarding the classified documents. Comer now also wants to know what line of questioning Hur used during that interview. That's to determine if the special counsel really tried finding links between the president and foreign payments. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans are preparing to take their vote for House Speaker Public. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio is the elected nominee, but it still remains to be seen if he has the votes to secure the gavel. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us from the Capitol with more. Melina, set the scene for us. What can we expect to see tomorrow with this vote? Well, at this point in time, Tiff, it's looking better and better for Chairman of the Judiciary Jim Jordan to take the gavel at some point this week. That's because he has been able to chip away at some of the people who originally opposed him. For example, the Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers, said that after having a conversation with Jordan, he feels more comfortable about casting his ballot in that direction. Now, some others have followed after Mike Rogers, saying more or less the same exact thing. But the reality is, it's really unclear right now whether Jim Jordan Jordan has 217 votes that he needs to take the gavel tomorrow when they are expected to meet at 12 o'clock for that first public vote. And that's important to note because this is a change from the strategy that Jim Jordan himself, as well as other Republicans originally wanted. They wanted to secure the 217 votes needed behind closed doors before bringing it before the public. But now regardless, Jordan said he says he's confident to move forward with this public vote vote tomorrow. While there are still some Republicans who are a bit resistant on voting for him. Some others are also publicly floating the idea of working with Democrats to elect a speaker. But regardless, Jim Jordan says he's optimistic and feels good about tomorrow. Take a look at this. Nobody in America can get 217 right now out of the Republican conference. If that becomes apparent to everybody, then at some point in time, we're going to have to work across the aisle, try to figure out what it's going to take for us to be able to get a speaker elected. The only way to do this is the way the founders intended is you uh, you have the vote tomorrow. Um, we've set it for 12 o'clock, and um, I feel real good about it. It's not going to take 17 rounds. Okay. I think we'll take a very few rounds and probably uh, have Jim Jordan as our speaker in the next two days. His plan last week 
was that we are going to put forward a, a clean uh, continuing resolution. I, I'm still concerned, but I'm prepared to, to put a vote for our nominee. So that last point that the Congresswoman just made actually speaks to the larger reality of the way the House is operating right now. The fact that even if Speaker the, uh, Jordan is able to take the speakership tomorrow, he still comes in at a really tough time for the House right now because we're just one month away from the government running out of money. Yet again, there will be another spending fight, which will have to work within the Republican conference to get Unisys there, as well as with the Democrat-controlled Senate and the Democrat-controlled White House. It's a very difficult time, especially the fact that Republicans have not yet changed the motion to vacate, which allows that one member to make noise and potentially oust the speaker, just like we saw with former speaker Kevin McCarthy. But regardless, Jim Jordan said that he's vowing to unite his party, not only for the speakership, but also for other issues moving forward. I'll read you exactly what he said in his letter to his colleagues just today. He said the principles that unite us as Republicans are far greater than the disagreements that divide us. The country and our conference cannot afford us attacking each other right now. So as of right now, like I mentioned earlier, it looks like Jim Jordan is chipping away at some of those no votes, but we will be waiting anxiously to see tomorrow. Will he have enough votes to win the gavel on the first round or will it take multiple rounds and will we see a speaker at some point this week? Tiff? And former Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry won his bid to be the governor of the Pelican State. He'll be the first Republican to hold the office in eight years. Landry trounced the competition in this off-year election by receiving almost 52 percent of the vote. This was about double the combined votes of 13 other candidates, including six Republicans. So no runoff will be required. Louisiana has a jungle primary system, meaning all contenders are on the same ballot. If any candidate gets 50 percent or more of the primary tally, they win. Otherwise, the top two vote-getters would move on to a runoff. Coming up, a National Security Fellow says America's counterterrorism programs are no longer viable. Find out how big the threat is on the southern border. Major U.S. pharmacy chain Rite Aid has filed for bankruptcy protection. Find out if it will affect you at one of its 2,000 stores across 17 states after the break. Welcome back. The FBI says it's seeing more terror threats in the U.S. since the war between Israel and Hamas began. Could some of those threats be coming from terrorists who entered through the southern border? We spoke with a senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies to learn more. Todd Benzman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Todd, we're now hearing reports coming out of Israel on how this surprise attack could have happened, especially about the border. Now, here in the States, Homeland Security is noting, quote, a growing number of individuals on the FBI's terrorist watch list trying or attempting to cross the southern border into the U.S. Give us a sense of just how serious this is for America. Well, the southern border is notoriously wide open right now. Almost everybody or anyone who reaches that border uh, can actually enter the country and stay through any one of uh, four or five different methods, uh, legal pathways, illegal pathways, uh, either way you get in uh, with very, very little vetting. And so that has caused 
such an onslaught of humanity over the border that we now can probably vet no one. Uh, and among those people who are coming are nationalities from you know 160 different places throughout the world, including all of the countries around Israel and uh, places where terrorist organizations operate. Uh, and as a result of how open things are and how many people are coming, we have had a record number of individuals who were already on the FBI's terror watch list before they showed up. And then we happened to run their names and it flagged, hey, these guys are on a terror watch list, while about 2 million others got right on through undetected. So we have a pretty good idea from those 250 uh, you know, who might be among the 1.8 or 2 million gotaways. And that really is the heart of the national security kind of risk profile or the threat uh, that we're looking at because, you know, people are going to be very angry in the coming months uh, over what Israel is about to do and the war that's about to follow. And, uh, you know, in the intelligence world, you know, you start to see a lot of people pop off, uh, you know, spark off on terror attacks and uh, hate crime attacks and that sort of thing inside the United States. I think there's a lot of that threat information coming through right now. And Todd, you actually wrote a book on this. It's titled America's Covert Border War, The Untold Story of the Nation's Battle to Prevent Jihadist Infiltration. Now, one of the points you bring up in that is that many Americans either don't know or believe that terrorists are coming through our border, but that the effort to prevent this from happening is actually why we don't see attacks by jihadists that we're seeing in Europe, for example. Could you expand on that and give us a sense of that? Right. For, well, one thing that um, I talk about in the book, and here it is, America's Covert Border War. This was just about published about two years ago. Uh, the book is really about the programs that were stood up after 9-11 for the border specifically to, to uh, intercept, detect, and then investigate uh, people coming from countries of national security interest. The problem is that uh, and, and what I would add to that is that that these programs have prevented many terror attacks. Uh, the book goes into you know pretty elaborate detail about a lot of uh, individuals who came across who were detected when the when the total numbers were far smaller than they are now and therefore more manageable. Uh, and so, if you haven't had an attack, people tend to lose interest. Uh, if you flood a drug corner with cops, you won't have drug dealing on that corner until the cops go away. Well, in this threat issue, the cops have gone away. Uh, the corner is back to, in the hands of the bad guys uh, or the people we don't even know anything about. And that's really the problem, that these counterterrorism programs are, are now unviable. They are not being carried out any longer because the numbers of people coming from those terrorism countries are so vast, 75,000 the Daily Caller reported uh, recently in just eight months. Uh, there's no way that they can capture and investigate and hold that many people uh, anymore. And so they're just letting them through into the interior with maybe a, de a database check. And on that note, what immediate steps can the U.S. take to mitigate these risks? 
Well, the intelligence community is uh, very familiar with this kind of thing. We've been through this uh, many times. Uh, and typically what they do is, uh, you know, ramp up uh, surveillance, uh, move, reprioritize older cases that might involve people from uh, the Gaza Strip or the occupied territories and, you know, re-energize uh, those kind of cases uh, to start working informants uh, in all of our cities. We have 56 FBI joint terrorism task forces that have state and local components. Uh, to have our uh, overseas intelligence officials share whatever they're picking up, uh, foreign intelligence communities, uh, uh, agencies to be uh, bringing to us uh, our attention, uh, derogatory intelligence about uh, people coming from all over and to just really, really be ultra extra vigilant and work around the clock from this point forward. A lot at stake here. Todd Bensman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Major U.S. pharmacy chain Rite Aid has filed for bankruptcy protection. The company said yesterday that it obtained over $3 billion in new financing as it carries out a restructuring plan. NTD Business's Don Ma breaks it down for us. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, as always, great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, what is the situation currently with Rite Aid? Yeah, you know, so first of all, Rite Aid is the third largest nationwide uh, standalone pharmacy chain, uh, has more than 2,200 stores in uh, 17 states. But due to various factors, it has become pretty debt laden. Uh, the company said it had reached an agreement with its creditors on a restructuring plan to cut its debt, and, and that this bankruptcy filing was actually part of that. Um, so this plan, it hopes will significantly reduce the company's debt. Uh, the plan will also help to actually reduce litigation claims against the company because uh, Rite Aid has also faced accusations of filing unlawful opioid prescriptions for customers. The U.S. Justice Department says that Rite Aid potentially had contributed to the opioid epidemic in the U.S. and. Rite Aid in 2022 settled for up to $30 million to resolve lawsuits. But I think the good news here may be that uh, the bankruptcy actually um, will not affect the company's business operations. Some big accusations there, but how much debt are we speaking of here? Right. So according to the last time the company filed a financial report, Rite Aid had just $135 million of cash on hand. It had a total debt of $8.6 billion as of June 3rd. And by the way, uh, the, uh, the amount of debt owed actually exceeded the value of the company's assets by nearly a billion dollars here. And, you know, with rising interest rates, uh, that debt wasn't cheap to finance. Uh, the company saw losses of around a billion dollars just from March last year to May this year. And according to data and, and analytics company Global Data, it was always a matter of when, not if, uh, that Rite Aid would file for bankruptcy because the company has been deep in the red for the past six years here. And on that note, what does Rite Aid's restructuring plan look like? 
Sure. Uh, the company said uh, in a statement that it had secured $3.5 billion in financing and debt reduction agreements from lenders uh, to keep the company afloat uh, through its bankruptcy process. It said it would accelerate its pace of store closures and sell off some of its businesses. And as I mentioned earlier, bankruptcy um, could also help resolve the company's legal disputes at a vastly reduced cost. Um, and as part of the bankruptcy plan, uh, Right Aid appointed a new CEO as well, Jeff Stein, uh, who is also going to serve as the head of restructuring and as a board member. Stein hopes as well, um, he said this in a statement, that the company plans to remain in business. So this isn't the end of Right Aid then? Yeah, it seems like it may not be. Well, Donma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. Coming up, a key priority for the Israeli military, figuring out Hamas's secret underground tunnel system. It's reportedly longer than the Grand Canyon, and it may be where the hostages are. Are world powers looking to influence the outcome of the Israel-Hamas war? A counterterrorism expert tells us that the U.S. needs to focus on all global threats and stay out of Israel's way. And Taliban leaders are headed to China this week for a forum focused on Beijing's top infrastructure project, the Belt and Road Initiative. We'll find out why that's significant after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The war between Israel and Hamas is now the deadliest of five Gaza wars, with over 4,100 people killed. The first evacuation ship carrying Americans left Israel and headed to Cyprus. A judge imposed a limited gag order on former President Trump in the federal election case. He is restricted from attacking the witnesses, prosecutors or court staff involved in the case. Congressman Jim Jordan was able to flip some of the holdout members of the Republican Party as he runs for House Speaker. He said he will proceed with a vote in the full House tomorrow afternoon. Hamas's massive secret underground tunnel system, a key obstacle to Israel's upcoming land invasion. One of Israel's main objectives will be to locate these tunnels. NTD's Faye Quarter talks with a former senior Israeli government official for details. Hamas's intricate network of underground tunnels, a huge advantage for Hamas and a huge threat to Israel's military in its goal to wipe out the terrorist group. Hamas terrorists, instead of like confronting the Israeli army, are fleeing to the tunnels. They are taking refuge in the tunnels. They are also taking refuge in the fact that the tunnels are deliberately digged in a massively populated areas. Avi Melamed is a former Israeli senior official on Arab affairs. He says Hamas built these tunnels in populated areas intentionally in order to use civilians as human shields. Some tunnel entrances are in stores and apartments. They run under schools, homes, and even mosques. Hamas can use the tunnels to hide, launch surprise attacks, and smuggle items. Some of them are so wide that a truck could go in those tunnels. Some of those tunnels, believe it or not, have elevators. Some of those tunnels are with air condition, with electricity, with communication systems. Hamas claims it has built over 300 miles worth of tunnels under Gaza. That's longer than the Grand Canyon. 
Finding these tunnels will be one of Israel's key objectives. Yes, we do have technology that looks underground. We do have spy satellites that can see tunnel systems. But in a country or in an area as densely populated as Gaza, it's hard to distinguish between, for example, a, a sewer tunnel, a water line, and a terrorist tunnel. Middle East expert Gerard Felitti says one method is to target tunnel entrances with airstrikes. But with so many tunnels, there would be no way to get them all. And it's believed there are Israeli hostages in this tunnel network. It doesn't appear that there's any other choice but entering uh, physically and going door to door and looking for the entrances to these tunnels and looking for the hideouts. Geopolitical analyst Irina Zuckerman says this may be the only way to find the terrorist leaders, valuable items, and hostages. Doing so would be very dangerous. The tunnels are likely booby-trapped, filled with explosives that can be detonated. It's unknown when the land invasion will begin. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Does the situation in Gaza go beyond the conflict between Israel and Hamas? A counterterrorism expert tells us that Iran, China and Russia are all involved in some way, enabling threats that could ultimately cross the U.S. border. Kyle Scheidler, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Kyle, to begin, we're hearing reports of Hezbollah potentially joining this fight against Israel with backing from Iran, which has the ability to potentially create nuclear weapons. How should Israel be responding right now? Well, Israel's problem is that they have been struck hard by Hamas. They have taken very serious civilian casualties of a kind that they have not faced in decades. Uh, they really need to reset uh, the strategic calculus in the region. That means not just deterring Hamas. They have to deter Tehran. And Tehran has uh, ultimate control over the moves, moves of its proxies in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Yemen, and in Syria. So Israel has to look at that entire battlefield. They can't look just at Gaza. And we're now seeing reports and countries like China saying that Israel's response has been more than just self-defense, saying they should lessen it. But what would happen if Israel were to back down? Well, ultimately, it sends a very bad message uh, to all of the players in the region. It shows Hamas that they can get away with, of course, literal murder uh, and worse. Uh, and we will see a continued escalation. The problem with much of the discussion we are having now is they are blaming Israel for the potential of escalation. But the reality is the worst escalation will be if Israel does nothing. If Israel does not reset, as I said, the strategic calculus, it will mean that these actors can uh, do as they please, and they will only worsen their attacks. So we've seen attacks from Hamas. This was the worst attack we've ever seen from Hamas. Next time will be even worse uh, unless Israel sends a, a really clear message. And for the scale of this, you wrote a piece recently comparing what we're seeing in the Middle East to J.R. Tolkien's story of evil sweeping Middle Earth. How does what we're seeing there impact us here in America? Well, you mentioned, of course, China, and uh, both China and Russia have taken essentially Hamas's side in this conflict, uh, trying to restrain Israel and really emboldening their ally, Tehran. Uh, and that is a reflection of, as I called in the piece, the sort of growing evil uh, that we're seeing across the world. Uh, 
And the point that I was trying to make was that for the United States, we must keep a global perspective. We must keep an eye on all of the various hot points that we may need to respond to. Uh, we have to let Israel deal with this situation on their border. They are more than capable of doing that uh, if we get out of their way and if we do not try to restrain them. Uh, in the meantime, we need to keep our eye on all of the various threats in, around the globe, including on our own border, where you have drug cartels that have very close ties to Hezbollah. Uh, our border is essentially wide open. Uh, they could move any manner of uh, threats across that border, and there's very little right now that we're prepared to do about it. So we need to be thinking globally about all the possible threats and let Israel take care of its own. And speaking of the U.S., U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv again in less than a week. He is reaffirming U.S. commitment to Israel. Now, Israel's defense minister is saying that this will be a long war. How long are we expecting? Well, that, of course, will depend in part on how they choose to respond. It does sound like the message messages coming out of uh, Jerusalem are that the Israeli authorities recognize that they need uh, to take very serious action, uh, not just against Hamas, but against all of the threats on their border. If they choose to do that, um, it could potentially go for a while. We know that Israel has called up essentially all of their reserves, and they're getting a great response, um, over 100 percent commitment from the Israeli reserves. So they are preparing for the long haul. I'm concerned that Blinken's presence in the region is really more about restraining Israel uh, than it is helping them, however. And what should the U.S. be doing, or what should the message be from the U.S.? Essentially, uh, the U.S. should be getting out of Israel's way. They should uh, make clear that Israel uh, must respond to this attack, and we expect them to do so. Um, in other words, not try to restrain them, not try to rein them in, not try to prevent them uh, from attacking Hezbollah if that's what they feel they need to do, for example. Uh, and right now, that's not the message coming out of Washington. Washington is saying one thing, but they're doing another. Uh, they are speaking as though they have Israel's back. But in their actions, what they are signaling to Tehran and elsewhere is that they do not want uh, Israel to take major uh, action to change the situation, which would be a win for Tehran and for its proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah. Quite concerning. Well, Kyle Schadler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This week's Belt and Road Initiative Forum will kick off under a darkening economic outlook for China. It marks the third forum for the major Chinese infrastructure project. Notably, leaders from the Taliban, Russia and Pakistan will appear at the summit. The Taliban is looking to convince Beijing to build a road connecting China and northern Afghanistan. Worth noting, no government has officially acknowledged the Taliban since it replaced the Afghanistan's government two years ago. China is the first country to appoint an ambassador to Kabul since the Taliban took power and has increased business cooperation with Afghanistan. China's expanding presence in the country has sparked concerns in the West. From Afghanistan, from the botched U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan, the Taliban obviously hoovered up all of the American weaponry. Afghanistan's completely dependent on China economically. And at the same time, then China is able to spin that and say, oh, look, the U.S. bombed Afghanistan, but we, China, we love Afghanistan. because." 
Moscow confirmed President Vladimir Putin would join the Belt and Road Summit. That's despite the international warrants for his arrest due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The project has also faced backlash from the West, with experts calling it a debt trap for the developing countries that have signed on. The West also accuses Beijing of a lack of transparency. Only one EU leader is set to attend the summits, Hungary's prime minister. At the same time, Italy is looking to opt out of the scheme. It's the only G7 country to have inked a Belt and Road deal with Beijing. Coming up in college basketball, the preseason polls are out. Will a transfer star put Kansas at the top? We'll have that and more when we return. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a busy weekend in sports. Let's start with the baseball playoffs. The Rangers won game one in Houston last night. Were you surprised the Astros got shut out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they have such a great offense. But really, this whole postseason has been largely unpredictable. I mean, of the four teams left, only one won their division. Uh, now, it puts a lot of pressure on Houston to win today. They are leading right now, but you don't want to fall behind 0-2 at home, of course. But now with Max Scherzer making his return from injury, it puts even more pressure on them. But it also sets up something us fans would all like to see, a possible Scherzer versus Verlander Game 7, two future Hall of Famers going at it. But we're uh, ways from that possibly happening. And uh, moving to football, the NFL's two lone unbeaten teams, the Eagles and 49ers, both lost yesterday. Do you still see them as the best in the NFC? Yes, but that, that's pending an injury report to Christian McCaffrey. Now, he's listed as questionable with an oblique injury, but he does have an injury pass. I mean, that's how the Niners were able to get him a year ago. But they went up against a tough Cleveland defense. Now, ditto for the Eagles. They went up against a tough Jets defense. In fact, they turned the ball over four times on the road and still were leading with two minutes left. So I'm still comfortable putting those two teams at the top of the, uh, the NFC anyway. And now you've mentioned your AFC contenders are Kansas City, Buffalo, and Miami, but you also originally had Cincinnati as well. And now that they've won two in a row, are you ready to re-add them? Uh, no. You know, they beat the uh, Seahawks and Cardinals, not exactly, you know, world beaters. But next up, they've got the Bills and Niners, so we'll, we'll know a lot more about them coming up. I think one team we're going to have to watch for is the Jets. Aaron Rodgers was on the field yesterday without crutches and just lim he was limping around a little bit. But really, you can't ignore any team that has Aaron Rodgers as a starter, even though he's 39 coming off an injury. Uh, so I think I've got, I would have to put him, them up there if he does return in week 12, which is a possibility apparently. And now shifting gears to college basketball, the preseason rankings came out today with Kansas at number one. Now, I know you're a Kansas fan, but does this surprise you? Uh, no, not really. You know, as soon as Hunter Dickinson announced he was transferring there, it certainly put them in the mix. Now, what Kansas fans are probably still happy about is that they did not get a postseason ban by the NCAA. This all came down to a 2017 investigation where they alleged that Adidas, who was their business partner, paid one of their players. Now, they did get some penalties, so it seems like maybe there was some evidence that they did. I think probably because the name, image, likeness, you can pay players, uh, maybe that was the reason. But as far as for the talent, they're loaded, and that's definitely why they're at the top. Well, Dave, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany.
And if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.